Well, we're coming to uh, now our second part, probably of, our, of a four-part review of Matthew in preparation for the, the, the uh, more difficult mis- and misunderstood sections of the Gospel of Matthew today as we go into Matthew 24. So I'm going to, again, just read, actually, I'm going to probably read each time the, these first 34, 35 verses of Matthew chapter 21, 24, verse 1 to 35. And uh, just to get us kind of saturated and familiar with what we are preparing for. So Matthew chapter 24. As I mentioned, Matthew is helping record this, but I also want to make sure I record it just just in case. Um, So Matthew chapter 24. I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. So Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be, uh, will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray and will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to the tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray, and because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant, for those uh, who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No one never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if, you, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east, and shines as far as the west, 
so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory and he will send out his angels with the loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of the heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, so you, uh, you know that summer is near. So alas, also, when you all see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. This is the word of our Lord. You may be seated. So as I mentioned, uh, now part two of our review of Matthew, preparing, kind of seeing the flow of uh, of, that leads us up to this discourse or teaching that present, was presented to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So that's why we'll, we call it the, the Olivet Discourse. And as, as he's sitting on Mount, the Mount of Olives, it'll be, well, I'm going to note it later, but it's, it's worth noting uh, the Mount of Jerusalem. Jerusalem itself is on a mount and the, and the temple is there. It would be in full and perfect view of Jesus and his disciples as they are on, on the, 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 Mount, the Olivet, uh, Mount of Olives. And so that's why we're, as they're there, it says that the disciples, as we read, they're looking, they're, they're beholding the glory of the temple. It's because they have this perfect, beautiful view of, of it all. And so it prompts this question. We'll, we'll get there. Uh, t- today we, and we, we began our review. I kind of gave us a lot of introductory work last week. And so we only got... As far as uh, chapter 3 in our review, today we're going to go from, we're going to see chapters 4 through to chapter 15 of Matthew, and then next week we'll be able to, Lord willing, get through chapters 16 to 22, and then we're going to spend a bit more time on chapter 23, and that will launch us into chapter 24, uh, and we'll, we'll hit the ground running at that point and be ready to, to, to take it all in. Well, I forgot to, um, I wanted to be also mentioned, but I, I didn't make last week's sermon, uh, the audio, available uh, yet. It's there, and, and I can, I'm going to get that accessible to you all as I said I would. It was recorded, and so I'm going to make that available um, for anybody who wasn't able to join us last week or just you just wanted to, needed to hear it, go over it again. And, that, I'm, we're, and we're going to keep doing that uh, just to make sure... Uh, as I mentioned last week, how our, our introduction and study of the Olivet Discourse over the next few months will be like the development of, of an entire structure from the preparation uh, uh, of the groundwork to the establishing of the foundation to the building of the framework and so on. It's, it's going to be important that you are able to follow step by step all along the way. And so, so that's my aim and my intention with that. And if you're going to follow the flow, not only of the message of Christ, 
but of the entire Gospel of Matthew and the theological case being made that in Jesus is the Christ and in him all the Old Covenant promises are yes and amen, including the Old Covenant curses upon a people who who will crucify the Holy One of God, then it will be important that you follow with me every step of the way here as much as possible in order to avoid tripping or stumbling over what I'm explaining along the way. Does that make sense? If you miss a step, you, you might hear what I say on the next step and you'll stumble, you'll trip, because you, 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 you weren't able to do the, the previous one. So, um, so we're gonna, I'm going to make that available for everyone. I, I'll also mention right away, uh, one more time this time, I'm not going to say it every time. I don't have the book with me here. as a visual because I want for you to see. Um, So this is the book, this is the work that I'm relying heavily upon to kind of help navigate our way through the Olivet Discourse, uh, making much use of the framework and content of of this book by uh, Ken Gentry. Uh, It's an introductory book to this subject called The Olivet Discourse Made Easy. So this is what I'm using quite a bit for this. And uh, in contrast to many of the older theologians and commentators that I will draw from and have drawn from, as I usually do, uh, I found Gentry's study in this book to be very helpful uh, to navigating through this passage uh, more intentionally in light of the many uh, eschatological presumptions made in today's current theological climate. In other words, um, when I'm reading some of the commentators that are um, like Spurgeon even from the 1800s or, or, or if you go to Calvin or whatever from the 1600s, they're not even like a lot of the discussion on the tribulation and, and that is going on today wasn't, didn't even exist back then. So it's, they're, not, they're not always uh, addressing what might be going on in your mind, the questions that you might have and what you've heard. And so that's why I found his book at least really helpful in that regard to know Uh, just how to navigate our way through this as uh, we prepare for the study. As he works through Christ's teaching, Gentry assumes that the primary audience of his study is coming from a futurist dispensational perspective and and will provide his interpretive case with that in mind. And again, I went over what that means, futurist dispensational perspective. I went over what that means Um, for how most people interpret the fulfillment of the Great Tribulation last week. But in case you missed that, or forgot it already, if you don't know what a futurist dispensational perspective is, then chances are that is the lens through which you will interpret this passage. That is probably what you, uh, how you will read this passage. And so uh, just due to the popularity that has been advanced not only by pastors, but by movies, films, and and books uh, as of late. Uh, And so the futurist dispensational interpretation is is just the air most of us grew up breathing, uh, whether you were even in church or not, whether you even knew it or not. So so if you don't know what that means, take heart, um, because because he's assuming that you don't know what that means. I'm I'm assuming that you don't know what that means. As we go through this, I'm just going to, again, as I said, take us step by step, um, taking your hand along the way. 
and the differences will be highlighted and explained as, as we go along. So that, hope, uh, hope, so that hopefully, even if you end up disagreeing with my interpretation, uh, my goal is that you would all at least be able to understand and appreciate the case that I will be making uh, for a historic first century fulfillment of the great, what we call the Great Tribulation, of verses 4 through to verse 34 in Matthew 24. Now, as I'll explain later as we work through it, I believe the last portion of the discourse is referring to Christ's return, his second coming, uh, and, and we'll get into why that is. So now we need to jump back into the basic groundwork of reviewing the flow of the themes of Matthew's gospel presentation leading up to this point to help get a sense of how Matthew has arranged the content and the flow of this entire gospel. Of the, uh, again, we talked about last week how the gospel what makes it unique is it's not, it's not uh, um, tied to the kind of boundaries we have today of, of chronological placement. But Matthew, he's, he's kind of picking and choosing different portions of Christ's life in order to tell us, to, to make, not only tell us about the life of Christ, but to tell us about what God is doing in the life of Christ. He's interpreting um, these events for us and preparing us for what it means that Christ the King has come. And so we're going to jump into Matthew chapter 4 now. So you can look at your Bibles. We're going to, just going to be kind of skimming and overviewing as we go. I'll just be high. I'm not going to be going over every point. Again, as much as you might want me to, trust me, you don't. Do you want me to look? As I said last week, that took us three years already to do that. So... We're going to get through uh, chapter 4 through to 15 today, just highlighting some, some bits and pieces. In Matthew 4, uh, this chapter followed by the, uh, by the satanic temptation in the wilderness, the formal beginning of Jesus' ministry is marked by the imprisonment of his forerunner, John the Baptist. And so Jesus withdraws, verse 12 says, to the less politically significant region of Galilee. Yet Jesus' strategic retreat to Galilee fulfills a prophecy from Isaiah 9 and, and chapter 42, anticipating the inclusion of the Gentiles in God's plan of redemption in verses 15. So it says, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the wave of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. That's, and sometimes it can be translated, the nations. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And again, the contrast between the hostility of political and religious Israel to the extension of hope of the gospel to the nations, to the Gentile, is being developed, and to which history would eventually also demonstrate as you go through the gospels and the, the letter, the, uh, and Acts. Jesus' first recorded words in, this, in his preaching to Israel reflect those of John the Baptist. So in verse 17, from that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Again, I said this last week, it was not a conditional statement. So he, he was not saying, Repent, in order for the kingdom of heaven to come. He was saying it was, it was a command and a threat. Repent 
because the kingdom of heaven is coming whether you're ready or not. And given the similarity between the message of Jesus and John the Baptist, this suggests Jesus anticipated the approaching judgment of God, just as John did as he spoke to the Pharisees and the Sadducees we saw last week. Jesus proclaims in the north the message that had been silenced by the prominent leaders of the south. So we're seeing this, this contrast being kind of the seeds being sown here. And we have Matthews chapter 5 through 7. We have the, uh, the other very well-known sermon delivered to the curious crowds from a mount, right? We have the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and within it are a variety of negative, uh, regarding, uh, a variety of negative views regarding the conditions surrounding Israel's response to Jesus and his ministry by anticipating suffering and persecution for those who choose to believe and follow him. So, so right away in, in Matthew 5, verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you, the, the Jews, the Jewish prophets who went before them. He's saying they'll, they'll, they're treating you the same way as they treated them. And this theme of Israel resisting God by attacking her own prophets will be further developed leading up to chapter 24. And especially we'll see, we saw that when we, we left off in Matthew 23. And then in, in uh, Matthew 5, 47, verse 47, as, as chapter 6, verse 7, and verse 32, we have a comparison between Jews and Gentiles being made. So Matthew 5, 47. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Similarly, chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. And then later in verse 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. And the point being made, that I'm, made, that's, that I'm trying to expose here, is basically that the Jew who refuses to trust and obey the teaching of Jesus is no further ahead than the Gentile on the broad road to destruction with with the Gentile, right? So the, so the Jew who, who refuses to hear what Jesus is saying and to repent and to believe in him, they're just like the Gentile. They're no better off. Cut off from the people of God who will enter by the narrow gate. And in conclusion to the Sermon on the Mount in, Ma in chapter 7, verse 28, he records the crowds rec uh, recognizing the supremacy of Christ's authority in comparison to their most prominent religious teachers and authorities, as one who teaches uh, with authority and not as the scribes. Okay? And then we move on to Matthew, 20, uh, sorry, Matthew 8. In contrast to the foreshadowed resistance of Israel to this point, in chapter 8, verse 10 to 12, we read of the Roman centurion who exercises more faith than anyone Jesus has seen in Israel. 
Verse 10, Jesus heard this. He marveled, right? Je Instead of people marveling at Jesus, this is the first time Jesus marvels. Another time he marvels at their un the, the Jews' unbelief. Here he marvels. And he said to the, those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one, no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then we'll move on to Matthew chapter 9. Verse uh, 16 to 17. Jesus teaches that the constraints of the Old, co of old Covenant Judaism are like old wineskins that are ready to burst, right? The wine and the wineskin have to age together. Uh, and, and they would use these kind of hide skins, and so they wouldn't last forever. And they were ready to burst. Yet God will provide new wineskins a new container, an, or we could say a new ambassador to contain the wine of the kingdom, which is later revealed to be the new covenant church. So verse 16, he says, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment and the worst tear is made. Neither is, is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bursts and the wine is spilt and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. By this illustration, Jesus explains that he was not simply bringing in a revised, updated Jewish nation or people, or even that he was founding a new sect within Judaism, but that the gospel and kingdom that he was bringing was such that it could not be contained within the Old Covenant ceremonial sacrificial framework. His coming could not be fitted into those, to those old forms. And thus the Gospel cannot be simply added to, to Judaism. It's not just uh, added on top of it. Rather, the Jew, as well as the Gentile, must repent and believe the Gospel. Christ is the vine, and He is the only one that we must attach ourselves to. In Matthew chapter 10, at Matthew 10, verse 5, Jesus intentionally limits His personal ministry to Israel. That's, that's interesting to consider. Verse 5 says that these twelve, Jesus sent out instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles. So now he's telling them, don't go to the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, which would include half Jewish, Jews, Gentile mix. So not, uh, not Jews. If, if you weren't, um, if, if you weren't uh, a, a true Jew. But he says, go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And by this he is demonstrating the priority of Israel as the unique Old Covenant people of God and as, uh, who are the apple of His eye. Ensuring, and what, what He's doing here is He's ensuring that the people of Israel and, that, and what Matthew's doing is ensuring that we know that this is what He was doing. But Christ was concerned 
And, and, and his mission was to ensure that the people of Israel had every possible opportunity to repent in preparation for his coming. So that's who he was sent to. That, that was his job. So that he is without blame he, in when, when judgment comes. Do you see that? He, nobody can say, nobody is with, with, uh, with ex, has excuse. Um, he came to the house of Israel. And, he, and it, to the exclusion of others. He made that his first priority when he came. However, as becomes evident later, Jesus knows there are many who will not repent. And so therefore, in verse 16 to 17, Jesus, knowing where this is going, he warns his disciples. Chapter 10, 16, he says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as servants and innocent as doves. Beware of men, who will, uh, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And so then in Matthew, uh, in verse 23, Jesus promises that he will soon judge Israel. Verse 23 says, When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. As I've explained before, and, we'll, and we're going to get into this more later, um, the language of the coming of the Son of Man is a phrase throughout Scripture which is a reference to God's divine judgment, His execution of divine judgment on earth, which verse 23 says here would take place before any one individual would have the chance to have gone through all the towns of Israel. And a few verses later, in verse 34, he warns, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. And that the word earth there is literally to this land. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against his mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take this cross, his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So this dividing line among the household's of Israel and the people of Israel as a whole, the dividing line would be found in their response to Jesus as the Messiah. Right? The, the dividing line is no longer who's my mother, who's my father, who, you know, who, who, where is my lineage. The dividing line will be what Jesus came, he says, is he's going to divide. He's going he's gonna to make, he's going to cut through those um, what once held them together. Christ is the dividing line. And then chapter 11. In verse 14, Jesus confirms that John the Baptist fulfills the prophecy of Elijah's return. Right? So verse 13, for all of the prophets in the law of 
uh, prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So John was the last of the Old Testament. I mean, he's in the New Testament, technically, but he, he, he's the last of the Old Testament prophets. So that's why he's saying up, up until John, if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. Last of the Old Covenant prophets, we could say. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 to 6, is the last words in your Old Testament. The last words in your Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. The context is judgment. And he will, ret- and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so noting the implications of this connection to the coming of Elijah prophesied in Malachi, uh, theologian R.T. France explains here, he says, if the forerunner has already come and finished his work, presumably the great and terrible day of the Lord for which Elijah was to prepare the way is now here. Perhaps it is the startling messianic implications of this claim which explain the uncharacteristically coy tone of the opening clause where he says, if you are willing to accept it. Because to accept that John is the returning Elijah is to embrace the whole package of eschatological fulfillment in Jesus for which clearly most of those who heard were not ready, right? They were not yet willing, uh, especially in consideration of the unresponsiveness of, of, quote, this generation condemned in the following verses. So if we continue in verse 6, Jesus continues in verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking and they say he has a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking and they say look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. He says these people can't be pleased. You go one way and they, they say one thing. You go the other way and they say the other. They're, they're not willing to accept this. Though it's right in your face. Jesus rebukes and he warns in cities in Israel of God's coming imminent judgment. Comparing them unfavorably to the wicked Old Testament cities. Right. So it continues in verse 20. He began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done. Because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have been rem- remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. I don't know. I I think the point that he's making is there is you can't imagine something. 
uh, if you think of what took place in Sodom, there is nothing more permanent, um, nothing more um, unbearable to think of than the judgment on Sodom. Once again, France is helpful here. He says, even if Galilee, including Jesus' own town of Capernaum, or even in, in, in his own hometown, the honeymoon period is apparently over, and those who have been privileged to witness Jesus' ministry in their own communities fail to respond, they must expect to face a more serious judgment than the, than the notorious pagan cities which had no such special revelation. So again, Matthew's Gospel is portraying a negative comparison of Israel, of the nation of Israel, over against the Gentiles. To whom much has been given, much more would be required, is what he's essentially saying. And at this point, it is becoming clear that Israel, as a united whole, would not repent and believe, and her judgment will therefore be severe. And he moves, we move into chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 39. Following a, ver- a variety of confrontations from the Pharisees, he characterizes Israel of his day as an evil and adulterous generation. Again, warning of God's coming judgment upon their unbelief. But this time he compares them to Nineveh, who did repent by responding in belief to the message of God's prophet Jonah. Followed by another, and then, and then and so after that illustration, we have another unfair, unfavorable comparison in verse 42 of Israel to Gentiles represented by the queen of the south, right? Or the, or the queen of Sheba. And one greater than, 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 um, than Solomon is here. This is followed in verse 43 to 45 by Jesus drawing an analogy of the sevenfold demonization of Israel that would unravel after the ministry of Christ and the apostles, where demons were being, if you, if you think of there, what Christ was doing, like demons were being cast out left, right, and center, and, and as, as apostles as well often with a single word or a command in Jesus' name. And so uh, a theologian and commentator, Donald Hagner, explains that this generation had experienced the powerful deeds of Jesus, which included demon exorcism, and to that extent, they had benefited externally for a time, but there had been no internal repentance. No acceptance and commitment to Jesus and his coming kingdom. And thus, this generation would be as susceptible to the power of of evil as they ever had been. So this is, and we talked about this in Sunday school, this is basically what happens when people, uh, they embrace and they take advantage of the fruit of God's blessings without submitting it all in their hearts to the will and to the rule of Christ. It's, it's, this is what, he, what basically he's saying would happen is it's, it's embracing today like conservative, traditional family values or, or embracing you know, constitutional freedoms 
without embracing Christ as the Lord and the source of all those things. Right? So you have the right packaging, but it's, it's lacking in the substance and in the power. And he's saying it actually makes make the, the house of Israel, it made Israel more vulnerable to Satan and to his schemes uh, than they were before. Because it, they, it looked, looked like after the ministry of Christ and, and cleaning things up, it looked like they had things sorted out for a while. But it, it was really just setting them up. Um, well, pride comes before the fall. And then note how all this is concluded in verse 46 to 50. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Okay, so again, tilling the soil of the radical reconceptualization in the mind of the Jew. I mean, again, we can't, again, I said this before, we can't perceive the thought that there would be a people of God who were not the Jews. And we call the church, we call ourselves, we identify ourselves as the people of God all the time. But at that point, uh, that just did not, that was not on the peripheral. And so he's preparing them. He's tilling the soil for them, uh, preparing them to, as how to think that they were now to be identified as the people of God, no longer being tied to the flesh, but to the fruit of faith. Right? right? He says there, whoever does the will of my Father who is in heaven, right? whoever produces the fruits of faith, these are my brothers and my sisters and my mother. These are our family ties. And as Paul observes in Galatians 3.29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. You are redeemed and regenerate Israel. If you are Christ. If you are not, well, that's where he's heading with this. If you're not Christ, then you'll be cut off. We've seen, you'll be thrown into the fire, he says. Matthew 13. So we're going to, these last ones, there isn't as much to emphasize. Um, so we'll go quicker through this. Matthew 13. We have a series of parables illustrating the nature of the coming of his kingdom on earth, which all ultimately concludes with his going to his hometown where he faces more unbelief, with verse 28 stating, uh, that, uh, sorry, 58, stating, and he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. In Matthew 14, it's really interesting when you, when you take a step back at Matthew 14, contrasts the satanic puppet king at Herod of Israel, who I remember he, he's not even a true Jew, he's married to a Jew, but he's an Edomite. But he's technically, officially, the king over Israel, a puppet king. It's contrasted against the truly anointed one and good shepherd, Jesus. So we see the contrast broadly, when, beginning with how John the Baptist, we, we have the story there of how his head was cut off 
for basically calling out King Herod and calling him to repent of his sin. And then that whole narrative is followed by Christ's response of compassion on the crowds, of him feeding the 5,000, of him healing the sick, and then demonstrating his authority over nature and creation itself, walking on water. And then Matthew chapter 15. Matthew 15, verse 17. Uh, 7. Matthew 15, 7. Jesus rebukes the rabbis in Israel for neglecting God's word and teaching falsely. He says, you hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts is far from me. In vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And he called the people to him and said to him, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? And he answered, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. He's talking about the religious leaders and rulers of Israel. He says, let them alone. They are blind guides. And if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. This is again contrasted with the faith of, can anybody guess? The faith of a Canaanite woman, of a Gentile who's bold in the following verses, whose bold insistence upon the Lord's abounding mercy prevails upon Christ in spite of the fact that he reminds that his mission and prophetic ministry was to the Jews and that, that, that wasn't yet complete. And yet she persists in faith. Humbly. In verse 7, she says, Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. And her daughter was healed instantly. And this is followed there with the stories of Jesus healing many, then feeding 4,000 people. And if you, you, you won't remember the sermon, I know, but as we looked at that, the details surrounding that narrative clearly suggest that the crowds were primarily full of, of Gentiles in the, the northern regions. And so you, you had that story earlier of Jesus feeding the 5,000 who were primarily the, the Jews who had come to him. And then it, it kind of contrasts here now with him feeding that he is, he is so, so the contrast is he's ready and he's willing and he's able to feed every Jew who comes to him and humbles himself before him and believes upon him. And, and then the, the emphasis comes here and, the, and his, his salvation uh, as Lord and Savior is so great that even his crumbs, right, his, his power is so abundant that even the crumbs from this master can feed the, the thousands and the crowds of, the, of all the Gentiles who come to him as well. So come and be full. So uh, again, hopefully your sense 
uh, of anticipation and excitement is, is starting to build as we kind of pick up pace here. I think you're, you've kind of got that uh, as we kind of have taken flight over half of, of Matthew so far. Then, as I said, we're going to, next week, we're going to look at verse, and, and, and the, as, we, as you might remember, the, the tension is just continuing to build. And so, verse, uh, chapters 16 to 22, that's what we'll look at next week. And then chapter 23, bringing us to, to chapter 24. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for, I thank you for the blessing it has been to be going over this, through this study for the past three years. And as we uh, have just kind of been looking over where we've been, God, we've been over, we've been through so much. Uh, we've been given so much, and uh, yet we are so prone to forget or to kind of have things go by the wayside. And so, Lord, we, while we thank you for you, your word, we also confess our, our frailty, our weaknesses. And so we pray that, you would, that your spirit would help us and that you would fill us and uh, help us to understand your word. Help us to remember it, um, that we may make, be able to, to fit uh, the, the, the message that you've given us together and understand it, that we may be able to apply it, God. That is ultimately our desire. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of head work, a lot of study to be going through now, but God, my prayer is that it would be, it, you would be planting it deep in the hearts of our memory and our minds, that it may uh, bear fruit uh, as we, in our lives as we find its application and teaching uh, as we will come to Matthew 24. So God, we ask that you would, would help us with that um, because we want you to be glorified. We want your word to, uh, to be understood and we want it to be proclaimed um, from our mouths and to, to the lost with clarity uh, and conviction. So God, we ask that you would do this in and through us in Christ's name. Amen.